We have been in the book of Habakkuk for two weeks, and we're going to finish tonight. All right, let me give you a preview of what's coming next week. Next week we will be in the book of 1 Peter, and over the next three months we will be in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude for the next three months. All right, and so uh, just kind of be prepared for that. We've been spending some time in the Old Testament for the last few weeks, and we'll go back to the New Testament and um, looking forward to getting involved in that study with you. All right, let me ask you this. We're going to start with you talking to me for a minute, and then I'll tie it into where we're going tonight. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in staff meeting during our devotion, Jeff Kelly asked us a question that got us thinking. And I want to ask you the same kind of question. I want to ask it two parts. The first question is, when you were a child, what amazed you? What confounded you? Cliff? So, yeah. Just rain in itself was interesting. You got something, Carol. I see it. The light bulb went on. So the radio itself, being able to hear voices, yeah. It's still, it's an amazing thing to think about. They broadcast it, and you've got something that can pick up these voices, and they come into your home. All right, anybody else have something that amazed you? Did you ever try it, Wayne? Okay. What amazes you today? What confounds you today? It's fast. 7,000 miles an hour is pretty fast. A plane was attempting to do that this week. So somebody said technology. I heard that. What What about technology? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it ama- I'm a part of this generation, but it amazes me the real-time nature of what we do. And so if I, you know, I mean, you just think about how much different that is than 100 years ago. If I wanted to communicate with somebody 100 years ago in Texas, it took a little while, right? Pony Express or train or something, but it took a couple of days. Um, before the telephone, for sure, it took a while. You know, I, I, I was watching so, uh, some information on the Civil War, and they talked about things that the Abraham Lincoln used that the South didn't use very much was telegraph machines. And so they could make movements, changes, more quickly than the South because they were still doing it by couriers or letters. But if I want to talk to somebody today, really anywhere in the world, I, I can do it instantly, like now. And I still, I'm, like I said, I'm part of this age. I don't understand how that works. Now, I type something in on a keyboard in mine, and it goes up to somewhere to there, and instant, I, you know, I understand if it took a few minutes, but it's immediately there. We're talking about that because one of the things that I think as, the, as kind of a modern church that we've lost is that sense of awe and wonder when it comes to God, that sense of fear and reverence. And sometimes people talk about that in ways that really don't translate to fear and reverence. I'm not talking about what we wear or what we sing or what kind of buildings we're in when we do kind of worship. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the way we interact with God. Habakkuk chapter 3 is an interesting close to an interesting book. 
Over the first couple of chapters, Habakkuk has questioned God, and God gave him an answer, and Habakkuk didn't like the answer, and he said, God, I don't like that answer. And God kind of says, well, that's how it is. Then you come to chapter 3, and starting in verse 1, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. Anybody know that? Nobody has a clue what that is. Most people think it's musical direction, so this is a song of some kind, and people went on, oh, it's to that tune. All right, we'll sing it to that tune. It's kind of gotten lost through the years, all right? Nobody around here, Miss Eleanor, you don't know how to play Shiganoth, do you? I don't either, all right? And so but we think that's what it is. Now, the only reason they even think they know that's what it is is because of what happens at the very end of the book of Habakkuk when it says, for the choir director on stringed instruments, okay? So that's the only reason they think this is a song. But here's what it says, verse 2. This is what I want you to, to, to just kind of grasp. I'm reading out the Holy Christian Standard, and I'm going to ask you in a minute if you're in a different version what yours says. It says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. So basically he says, I've heard your answer. It, chapters 1 and 2 was Habakkuk asking a question and God answering. Chapter 3 is him saying, okay, Lord, I, I get it. I've heard your answer. And then he says this, Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Does anybody have a different word there? I stand in awe of your deeds. Anybody read differently? I stand in awe of your amazing works. Yeah, we're not quite there. We'll get there. I was afraid. I feared. Okay? And was afraid. Here's the thing. The word there, translated awe, is a word that's often translated reverence or stood speechless or in awe. But the word in itself actually means I was afraid. I fear. Lord, I've heard what you have said, and I'm scared, afraid. Now, what we have to understand is when we hear the word fear, it means something different oftentimes than what um, is me- means here. Fear in our day has a different connotation, and it's almost always bad, right? What do you fear? What are things that you fear? When I say that question, do you think of good things or bad things? Bad, right? Anybody scared of snakes? Yes, okay. Heights? Yes. What's that? Illnesses? Fire trucks? We may need to do some counseling about that. (laughs) When we think of fears... We generally think of something bad. And if we get kind of to the deeper levels, we fear the way the country is going. Or we fear global war. Or we fear epidemics. The West Nile virus has come again. We fear that. But in the Bible, when it talks about fearing God, it doesn't mean something bad. It is just a right understanding of, That he is God, and we are not. And it's understanding that, and being okay with it, and trembling in his presence because of the power he could possess, or does possess. And the things he could do to us. And then he says this. All right, Lord, I've heard about what you are and what you've done. I hear that report, 
And Lord, I am in awe of who you are. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. So his response is, Lord, I hear about all you've done. I hear about what you're going to do. And that, that's, I understand that. But Lord, I, I want you to do in these days things that I've only heard of from previous days. I want you to do again what you've already done. But be nice about it, yeah. And while you're doing that, God, remember mercy. Here's the thing Habakkuk is kind of just dealing with. is If you remember, when we started Habakkuk, we said Habakkuk's not so much upset about the other nations. He's upset that the people of Israel are getting away with doing things they shouldn't be doing. And he says, God, you've got to do something about this. And God says, I am. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. He goes, well, I mean, that's not exactly what I, you know. God, that, that's not my plan here, God. You can, and God says, well, I don't care. That's what I'm doing. But they'll get theirs in the end, too. I'm going to bring about justice. And then Habakkuk comes back and he says, God, I've heard that. And I'm in awe of who you are and what you can do. I just want to be a part of a movement of God that I've only heard about. I want to be part, God, of you doing something that I've only been told stories about. Over the next three weeks in service, we're going to be talking about great stories from the Old Testament, amazing stories of the Old Testament. This week we're doing Noah and the flood, and next week we're doing David and Goliath. And he's basically saying, all right, God, like Noah and the flood, that, that was an awesome display of your power. Do it again. Now, maybe not destroy the whole earth, but show something that I've only heard about. David and Goliath and what happened there. God, do it again. Now, specifically, he's going to talk, and we're going to look at this in a minute, about Mount Sinai and the parting of the Red Sea and the escape of his people from Pharaoh. God, do those kind of things again. Now, as American believers, I, for whatever reason lately, have been reading or seeing a lot about the Great Awakenings. Guys like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield, D.L. Moody, who preached in revival came. And the cry of my heart is similar to Habakkuk's, Lord, do it again. I have heard of your testimony of the great things you have done. Lord, do it again. That's what Habakkuk is crying out here. Make yourself known in these years. Revive your work in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. And this is what I love. What I love is it doesn't say, do something for me, does it? It doesn't say, Lord, I need to be healthier, I need to be better. It says, I want your work, your kingdom to move forward. The idea here is that in the midst of these years, I don't care about myself as much as I care about your name and your kingdom and your purpose and your power. Gone is a selfish desire of Habakkuk to put himself, his people, and his plans on top. Now the concern is for the kingdom of God. In the midst of these years, make it known. The renewal the prophet calls for is not primarily a spiritual revival, but a reviving of God's purpose and plan. Not necessarily internal revival, but God, start again with your people to bring glory and honor to your name. The greatest cause in the world is the kingdom of God. And our prayers ought to be that God would do whatever it takes to propel forward the kingdom of God.
realizing that we may not get everything we want in the midst of that plan. Martin Luther wrote these words. Some of you will recognize them. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Self-centered generations moan about our own afflictions, our own particular issues. People that are mature in their faith are constantly calling for God's kingdom to advance, whatever that means. We are to remember the kingdom of God. And then we're to remember the God that we worship. Verse 3 and following is what they call a theophany. What is a theophany? Anybody know what a theophany is? What's that? Yeah, theology is the study of God. So you know God's at the beginning of theophany. All right? Theophany is a personal revelation of God that is given to a particular individual. You ever heard of an epiphany? Somebody has an epiphany? Well, it's the same end word. It's just about God. I have a theophany, this revelation. And what happens here is Habakkuk is in the midst of this time and saying, God, I've heard about you. And then he's reminded of who God is. And God's past actions proclaim that God's going to take care of everything. The prophet turned psalmist looks back now over the mighty acts of God that have been performed for Israel. Starting in verse 3. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendors covers the earth and the earth is full of His praise. This, just for your knowledge, this particular passage, these particular words are very ancient in the way they're written. And there are a lot of scholars that think he was intentionally calling upon the language that would have been used at the time of the Exodus to say, remember the God, the Holy One. Associating the Holy One with Mount Paran is more than just coincidental. In Deuteronomy 33.2, it indicates that Mount Paran is another name for Mount Sinai. So another aspect of this is that God is giving the law, the holiness. At Sinai, Israel was told that she had to be holy because the Lord was holy. Habakkuk has joined the quest for righteousness and holiness, and he traces that this God is the one who gave us the way to live, who delivered us from Egypt. He is the God who is more powerful than the Egyptian gods. He is the God that is more powerful than any God. There is nothing that he cannot do. Then he says, and in case we forget that, he talks about creation, right? His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. We had a pretty big storm a week ago, right? It's on Thursday a week ago. I, I remember it vividly because um, I was trying to get Ava calmed down a little bit for the night. She had decided that she did not want to get calmed down for a little bit. And while, you know, that storm hit it between 9.30 and 10.30, 10 o'clock, somewhere around there. And I had, I remember, because I had just gotten Ava asleep on my chest, holding her like this. And I began to see the unbelievable lightning everywhere. How many of you saw that last Thursday night? I mean, it was breathtakingly beautiful, all right? And so with Ava, I did what all men do in those kind of situations. I walked over to the window and began to look out. If I hadn't been holding my then five-and-a-half-week-old daughter, I would have opened the door and walked outside. But I 
if Susan caught me holding her in the midst of a lightning storm outside, there it would not have been a good evening, all right? And so I didn't. And then I started to hear little pellets. I don't know if you got it at your house, but our house, we got major hail. It was, it sounded like peop, they were taking buckets of golf balls and throwing them on my house for about five to ten minutes. And I remember taking her, and it was banging the windows, and the lightning was flashing, and the thunder was going, and it was raining. I don't know what raining cats and dogs really means, but it was worse than that, all right? And I was holding her, and I, I just had this moment when I thought, this is but a glimpse of the power that God possesses. He created a world where this is capable. It's only a glimpse. Habakkuk says, your splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like a light. Rays are flashing from his hand. What do you think that symbolizes? Lightning. This is where his power is hidden. There's one thing about lightning. When it's out there, it's not hidden, is it? And it's a glimpse. And then just in case we didn't think he was talking again about Egypt and all that, he says, plague goes before him and pestilence falls in his steps. What's the first thing you think of when you hear plagues in the Bible? Moses and Egypt, right? Even the nations were frightened by the manifestation of the Lord. He does this thing where he could show his power in ways that they couldn't copy or understand. Verse 6 even says, he stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nation. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. This is a picture of his wrath. In fact, back in chapter 3, verse 2, back in the, we read, when it talks about wrath there, the literal word there is the shaking or the trembling. In your shaking or your trembling, that the idea that, that the unsettledness of the anger... Remember your mercy. And what he says is amazing about God. He is such a powerful God. But to his people, he shows mercy. It's kind of an interesting thing. The word mercy there is taken from the word that means the mother's womb. There is very few places that even when everything else is shaking is as calm as a mother's womb. I'm not talking about the baby moving around because that happens. But a secure place he says these nations see your power i see the tents of cushion and distress the tent curtains of the land of midian tremble it's reminders of things that happen in the days of people like gideon and he says all of this and then he comes to verse eight and most people think he shifts into a future tense and he says lord i've heard about all these amazing things and then he says are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the seas? Is your rage against the seas? When you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot. And then he gives this very warrior-like image of God. You took the sheath from your bow. That means you readied the bow. The arrows are ready to be used with vengeance or an oath. You split the earth with rivers. 
Look at this symbolism. This is an amazing thing. When you think of an arrow going through the air, one of the images that I get, uh, one of the things I think about is like, you know, in movies when they shoot an arrow and then they shoot another arrow and it splits it, right? That arrow, that image of the arrow splitting the air or splitting the apple. He says that God did that with the rivers. It's a very um, visual understanding of the power of God. And, and not to get too um, anthropomorphic about this, you know, don't, don't equate too many human characteristics to God. We are made in His image. He is not made in ours. But the idea of God flinging rivers like arrows to divide the earth is a pretty amazing picture. The mountains, what most people would consider to be at that time the most stable thing on earth. C-U-N shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waist high. Sun and moon stand still in their residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. But verse 13 tells us why. Verse 8 asks the question, are you angry? Is it your wrath? Is it your rage? But 13 tells us why. He says you came out to do that to save your people. To save the people under your anointed. You crushed the leader of the house of the wicked. Stripped him from foot to neck. You pierced his head with his own spear. His warriors storm out to scatter us. Gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses. Stirring up the great waters. How many of you have seen the first Lord of the Rings movie? Anybody seen that? Fellowship of the Ring. There's this image in there that comes that Tolkien wrote that comes directly from here. Okay, in that in that uh, movie, which is a pretty good adaptation of the book, there's this scene where where they're escaping from these evil black hooded what they call wraiths, which are guys that are ha- almost dead. Right? I know that you really can't be almost dead. Right? You either are alive or dead. But these are guys that are they're bad, evil. All right? And they're chasing them, and they get to the river and. The one that's going to save the little hobbit calls upon the rivers and the rivers come out as horses and drown the people. Now, here, obviously, Habakkuk is not foreshadowing the Lord of the Rings trilogy, all right? But the idea here is a picture of God and the picture they would have come up with is the Egyptians being swallowed and the power that he possesses. Right, So here's what Habakkuk does. He says, all right, God, I stand in awe. And I stand in awe of what you've done and what you're going to do and what you're doing. Verse 16 does that again. It says, and I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. You think he's trembling, quivering? Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. He says, I'm going to wait with purpose. And then comes what is perhaps the most famous two verses in all of Habakkuk. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud. Now here's something that you need to know about that. In their day and time, the figs were there. And right beside the fig on the branch would have been a bud, a flower. And even if the fig didn't come, the bud would usually come. So if there's no bud, 
then that means it's really bad. Now, you also have to know that what's about to be described goes from convenience to desperation. So if the fig tree doesn't bud, the figs were kind of, um, I know we don't think as figs as luxurious things today. I mean, we think, I think of figs, I think of fig newtons. Those aren't really luxurious. Now, some of you eat figs, but to them, figs were, um, if you had a meal and somebody brought out a fig, they brought out the fancy stuff, all right? They brought out the really good stuff, all right? And so somebody hears all the figs. That's okay. We don't have any figs. There's no fruit on the vines. Okay, we can make it without the fruit. I mean, we won't have wine, but we have water. We're okay. Though the olive crop, well, now we're getting a little more serious. Olive was used for a lot, and the fields produce no food. There are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. You've just described the most harrowing thing a Jewish person, Israelite, could think in that day. No figs, no fruit, no olives, no field crops, no sheep, no cattle. That means nothing. Yet, even if that's the case, I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. He says this, and this is what I think is important for us to kind of understand. Spiritual maturity is being able to praise and worship God no matter the circumstances that are around you. Here's what I love about Habakkuk. His circumstances haven't changed a bit. Nothing is different in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 18, than it was in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. His nation is still disobedient. The Babylonians are still coming, and they're going to destroy his nation. And yet, he says, I will praise the Lord. We've been talking about contentment for the last three weeks on Sunday morning, and the epitome of contentment is being able to say, no matter my circumstances, I'm going to praise God. And there are a couple of things that he says here that are important for us to understand or that he understands. First of all, he understands that worshiping and praising God is about getting God, not what God might give you. That the important thing for a spiritually mature person is going after God to receive God, not the benefits that might come from that. I talked Sunday morning about how many of your prayers are about more safety and security. Well, how many of you pursue God just to have a relationship with God and to know Him and not for the health or the wealth or the safety or the security or the happiness that He might bring you? Just for Him. Habakkuk doesn't say here, God, I will praise you and I will praise you because I know eventually you're going to bring all that stuff back. He says, no, I'm just going to praise you. There are so many people that follow God today because of what they think God will give them, security, strength. And God does bring those things, but that's not the reason to pursue Him. He is the ultimate prize. Think about this, ladies. How many of you would enjoy it if when you were dating your current spouse, I don't mean that that you're going to have a future spouse necessarily or 
but you were dating your spouse. How many of you would have liked it if he were to come to you and go, you know, I'm really pursuing you because of the car that I get when we get married. Or the house that you have. Huh? Hey, does that work on you ladies? How many of you on your anniversary would love it? He go, boy, I tell you, it has been a great eight years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Look at all the stuff you have given me. Woo! What You want him to pursue you for what? You. Right? You don't want him to pursue you for your stuff, for your house, or your car, or your title. What do we call people that pursue other people for their money? Gold diggers, right? We got a lot of people gold digging God that are going after a relationship with Him for what He can provide them. Now, you won't find that phrase in any commentaries, by the way. We got a lot of people gold digging God, all right? You want to be pursued for you. And what God says is mature believers pursue Him regardless. That's why I get fired up when I watch TV preachers. Right? That's why I get fired up. I don't watch them. I can't watch them. I can't tell you the last time I watched the church channel because there wasn't much church going on on the church channel. Now, I'm not saying there aren't good people on there, and there are good people sometimes, but a lot of that is what? You pursue God, and if you pursue God, here's what you get. Name it and claim it. Faith it. It'll be yours. What did you say back there, Alan? Blab it and grab it. That's right. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless. Because listen, in my life, He has blessed me abundantly. But my pursuit of God should never be based on what I might get out of it. Because of who He is. He's God. He's the one that deserves all praise and honor and glory. I was watching the closing ceremony of the Olympics. And those people came out to sing. And people went nuts. Right? And they tried to have somebody for every generation. But let's be honest, some of those people from previous generations weren't representing their own generation very well. From my generation, they weren't representing very well. They looked like guys that had moved on past that generation. But people went nuts. That, that group came on. How many of you know One Direction? Y'all know who that is? I'm, I'm surprised, all right? Because they are the hottest young group in America. And they're not even from America. They're from England. One Direction. How many of you know who One Direction is? You can raise your hand. All right, here we go. Denise, you work with kids. and They know One Direction, don't they? All right. There you go. But here's the thing. Those girls that go crazy over One Direction, all they really care about is getting to know One Direction. Now, the truth is they got to know and they wouldn't be very impressed, probably, one-on-one. But how many of us are passionately pursuing a relationship with God just to get to know God? And that's it. It's the ultimate benefit. And that's where Habakkuk comes to. God, I don't don't think Habakkuk's real excited about the Babylonians coming in and destroying his land. It really doesn't matter, God, because what matters is you. And pursuing you. You see, we've got this all figured out pretty well about how to be good Christian people. 
We know the do's and the don'ts and the things that we have to do and the places we have to be and the things that we have to say and the way that we have to live and the things we put on the back of the car and the music that we listen to and the books that we read and the TV shows that we don't watch or we do watch. But I'm afraid too many of us have figured that out so much we have forgotten that in the midst of that, if we're doing all of that without God, we're wasting our time. And that this life is about passionately pursuing Him. I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. Holman Christian Standard uses triumph there, and I love it because it means I will gain my victory in the Lord. I rejoice in the God of my salvation. And then in verse 19, he uses a phrase that is only used here and in the Psalms. This is the only other place in the Old Testament besides the Psalms it's used where he says, My God, my Lord, Yahweh, my Lord. It was the highest title that was given to God from the Israelites. He says, He is my strength. And I love this last image. He makes my feet like those of a deer, enables me to walk on the mountains. The deer here is a female deer. The idea is that in their times, they had those those mountains and crevices. You've seen them like in the desert. Very thin, you know, uh, things. Looks like you can't even walk on them. But when they saw, people would look and marvel at the ability of the deer to be steady on the narrowest of ways. On the most treacherous of cliffs. And he says, my God, that no matter how ridiculous it gets around me, how difficult it becomes, my God is the one that gives me the strength to stand. And I'm going to trust in him. Last week we talked about the theme of this chapter or this book is that the righteous shall live by faith. And the idea here is that he is putting that into practice. He says, I'm going on. I'm venturing my eternal state with Christ, whether I have comfort here or no. If God come in, that's great. If God doesn't save me right now, I'm fine. You may know who John Bunyan is. John Bunyan wrote a book that's the second most popular book in the history of the world. Pilgrim's Progress, right? In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes this kind of allegory, but John Bunyan was a guy that spent time in jail. He was afraid consistently of dying, but he would write that he was more afraid of bringing disgrace to the Lord. And he wrote this, and some of this is kind of in Old English, so you have to listen intelligently, all right? He wrote, I thought with myself, if I should make a scrabbling shift to clamber up the ladder, yet I should either with quaking or other symptoms of fainting give occasion to the enemy to reproach the way of God and his people. This, therefore, lay with great trouble upon me, for methought I was ashamed to die with a pale face and tottering knees for such a cause as this. The idea is I'm worried that I'm going to disgrace the name. And after grappling with that, he writes, I am going on and venturing my eternal state with Christ. Whether I have comfort here or no, if God doth not come in, Thought I, I will leap off the ladder, even blindfolded into eternity. Sink or swim, come heaven, come hell. Lord Jesus, if thou will catch me, do. If not, I will venture for thy name. What he basically says is, I'm putting my stake in Christ, 
And if he saves me here or not, it doesn't matter. And even if I'm wrong in diving into eternity, I'm okay because I'm putting my faith with Christ. It's like Pascal's wager. Pascal used to say that he was a believer and he had friends that were philosophers that were not. He said, it doesn't matter. He says, if I'm right, then I win. If you're right, I lose nothing. But if I'm right, you lose everything. And with Christ, we're putting everything we have into that. Habakkuk says, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, whether the tree doesn't bud, the fruit doesn't come, the olives don't come, the fields don't produce food, no sheep, no cattle, I'm going to stake my place in following God no matter what. Habakkuk is a tiny book in the scope of this Bible. I mean, in fact, when you look at it, Habakkuk only covers that much of the book. But the message is amazing. A man who looked around him on all sides and was just asking God to do what God had said he would do and was told, I will. Says, God, I'm going to live by faith no matter what's happening. Whatever is going on in your life, the question I have for you tonight is, are you living by faith? And the second thing, are you pursuing God for God, not for the benefits that come?